everybody, welcome back to this podcast you shouldn't ignore. It's election day, yay! Here you get to vote for your favourite, well, or the, you know, the least bad option out of the politicians. So, apparently about 10% of voters make up their minds today. I originally thought I'd run out of time to do another episode, but you know what? I'm going to do a quick rapid-fire episode of some of the bits and pieces of policy that people have been asking me about. So, I'm just going to try and keep this as short as I possibly can and just wrap up some last-minute questions and clarifications about the election. So, without further ado, let's get into it. The first question is one from one of our listeners, Mel, and she was just asking about what are the differences between Labour and Liberal with their respective health policies. So, health. In terms of spending, both parties are exaggerating a little bit how much or how little the Liberals have spent in their time in government. The Liberals have um, been increasing funding steadily to keep up with population inflation, and this is leading them to claim their biggest spending in Australian history thing they've been plastering all of their campaigns, which is technically true, but it's nothing exceptional given they've just kept up with what they've had to, they've just kept up with inflation and rising demand and a bigger population. The other side of the coin is Labor's scare campaign of, the Liberals cut money to health! And this is based on when, back in 2015, with a new Labor... Liberal government came in, uh, their first federal budget predicted $80 billion would be saved over the decade to 2024 to 25 by reducing the amount promised to health and education by previous Labor governments. So Labor has repeatedly claimed this is a significant cut to health, as when they were in government, they'd promised more spending than what the Liberal government's first budget said they were going to do. So that's a little bit where that scare campaign tactic comes from. I think it's a little bit unfair because it's such a large amount of money spread over 10 years. But hey, if you look at it, um, when Liberals were campaigning last election, they did promise no cuts to Medicare, no cuts to health, and they then did that. So I guess this is partially true. But um, on the flip side of that, it's not like they haven't in- the Liberal government hasn't increased spending. So it's a little bit murky in the waters about, about that debate. So let's move on from last election and the wishy-washy promises that some pa- the parties can make about the other team sometimes. What other parties promising this election? So the Liberals are promising $500 million towards mental health compared to $200 million by Labor, but that's spread over about five, uh, 7 to 10 years. They're also promising another $1.6 billion to improve GP care, and it, I'm assuming this is going towards things like reducing out-of-pocket costs, uh, improving bulk billing and things like that. Both parties are looking at uh, lifting the freeze on Medicare rebates. Uh, Labor are just promising to do this sooner. In terms of Labor spending, they've pledged $2.3 billion to help cancer patients, and that's compared to $500 million promised by the Liberals. Labor have also promised to set aside $1 billion towards expanding hospitals, upgrades to wards, EDs, etc., and includes about $250 million set aside to help reduce elective surgery waiting lists for procedures such as knee and hip replacements or cataract surgeries. Both parties have promised to expand the pharmaceutical benefits scheme and help pay for different medications and make vital medications cheaper. In terms of dental care, uh, Bill Shorten said that if elected, a Labor government would provide up to $1,000 every two years to help cover the cost of dental work under Medicare. The $2.4 billion scheme would cover examinations, x-rays, cleaning, fluoride treatment, uh, lots of other bits and pieces. Uh, the Liberal Party has vowed to invest a further $1 billion over three years to provide core dental services for children and families to claim up to $1,000 in benefits under the Child Dental Benefits Schedule. And that comes on top of the $100 million the Coalition has previously invested in to assist low-income households to um, receive affordable dental care. So there's a bit going on. 
If you're really strong on mental health, the coalition are edging ahead of Labor in that one. If you're really in support of cancer treatments or hospital treatments uh, or dental care, probably Labor edging ahead of the Liberals on this one. All right, that's all I have for health at the moment. Let's move on to franking keterates and negative gearing. So, this is a question sent in by Amy. So, Amy was asking, what is the impact of Labor's negative gearing and franking credits policies? What do they all mean? How does it all work? I'm going to be totally honest, franking credits is a tough one, and it's not one I'm able to explain very well personally, so I'm not going to touch on that one too much. I thought the Shadow Treasurer, Chris Bowen, did a really good job explaining what is a pretty complex policy on ABC's Q&A program a few weeks ago. So if you type into YouTube, Chris Bowen, franking credits and select the Q&A video, it goes for about seven minutes. I thought it really well broke down what the policy was, how it's going to affect different groups of people, um, and what its pros and cons are. The main takeaways I got out of it is that the franking credits changes won't affect those on the pension. And this has been a big scare campaign by the Liberals. They've called, essentially just lumped it into what they've called a retiree tax, which isn't technically true. It only affects a certain portion of the population, and franking credits is thought to affect mostly middle to high income earners, but it won't affect those on the pension. Um, and the other thing about this policy is that the benefits they're talking about winding back have only really been in place since the early 2000s when they were introduced by the Howard Liberal government. Franking credits had previously existed as a policy since 1987, but didn't provide any further payout once tax payable on income was reduced to zero, which is what Labor is proposing we return to. If none of that made sense, don't worry. If you're under the age of 30, franking credits aren't going to affect you. We can move on. If you're a little bit older than that, or you're thinking more in terms of retirement, these policies might be worth exploring a bit further, and that's where I think going to that YouTube link can be really helpful. Now, negative gearing. So, negative gearing changes will not affect those already have an investment property, and you can still negatively gear investment properties on new builds. And I think this is a really important clarification for Labor's policy. The changes won't come into play until laws are passed, which theoretically would be January 2020. Um, and so, it's not scrapping negative gearing altogether. It's just trying to leave a little bit of wiggle room for first home buyers to crack into the market. And that's essentially what this policy is trying to do. Um, the policy is heavily geared towards first home buyers and young people who are facing significant difficulties with housing affordability compared to previous generations. It's not just because we're bad at saving or we're overspending on smashed avocado. These are actual differences um, and rising inequalities between homeowners and a gap between old and young homeowners. So, homeownership amongst 80 plus year olds has remained relatively stable. However, homeownership for 25 to 34 year olds has dropped from 52% in 1995 to 38.6% in 2013. Meanwhile, house prices have risen about 70% in Sydney and about 50% in Melbourne since 2012, and wages have only grown at about 2% in that time, which is about on par with inflation. So, there's a massive gap between house prices now and wage, and Melbourne houses are around 9.9 .9 times annual median income. So in short, uh, houses are becoming more and more unaffordable for young Australians who are working hard. So this policy is trying to help make a correction to make it easier for first home buyers to get into the market. The long-term implications of this policy are a little hard to predict, as with any financial policy, but negative gearing has been reversed in a similar manner once in the 1980s, with minimal changes to rents at the time. So Liberals' big scare campaign about, oh, negative gearing will push up rents, I don't think it has a lot of credit to it, and I haven't seen any modelling to support those changes. The Grattan Institute analysis of tax office data shows that middle-income earners are negatively 
gear more so than others, but the benefits overwhelmingly of negative gearing go to high income earners, with almost half of the tax benefits of negative gearing going to the top 10% of income earners. So this policy will affect affect some middle income earners, but it's overwhelmingly aimed at uh, high income earners and reducing the inequality and helping people get into the market for the first time. So that's negative gearing. Moving on. This next question was sent in by Ryan. Ryan said, I remember working for a small business. They asked very kindly if I would vote Liberal because a Labor government would generally harm their business and its bottom line. That was 2013. I was only 19 years old, but I just did it because... um, yeah, that's what they asked me to do. You touched on trickle-down economics of large businesses and how it isn't seeming to work, but it sounds relevant here. Can you discuss the small-medium enterprise impact between governments? All right, that's a great question, Ryan. So let's define small-medium enterprises quickly. So these are businesses that employ less than 200 people. They actually make up 97% of business in Australia, contribute to about 33% of GDP, and employ over 40% of the population. So it's about 7 million people, and they pay about... 12% of total company tax revenue. Now, I can't speak for previous elections, but I can certainly provide info for this election on small businesses. So, the Liberal government has promised to lower the corporate tax rate for small and medium businesses from 27.5% to 25% by 2021 to 22. This promise has been matched by Labor, so they're both promising the same thing here. No difference so far. The Morrison government is also helping small and medium businesses invest and grow through increasing and expanding the instant asset write-off. It's a policy that uh, has been increased from $25,000 to $30,000, and it can be used every time an asset under that amount is purchased. So, for example, it enables a cafe to get a new fridge or grill or a plumber to buy new tools or a courier van, and it'll be expanded so the medium-sized businesses with a turnover of up to $50 million can access it. Now, this policy has also been matched by Labor. So, so far, both parties, small businesses, promising the exact same thing. The only real difference I'd say there is between uh, how the different governments will affect uh, small to medium enterprises is I'd say um, Labor's promise to restore penalty rates. So this would benefit workers and potentially negatively impact businesses. That said, we had penalty rates for a long time previously and lots of small and medium enterprises ran okay with penalty rates. And it's not like that they were reversed all that long ago. It's only been a couple of years. So the long-term impacts of it, I'm not sure, or the negative consequences of restoring penalty rates, I'm not sure, but something that'll definitely advantage workers more than business owners. But that's probably the only major difference in small business between the two parties. Now, on big business, um, both parties seem to be fairly quiet about their policies for encouraging big business, except that Labor is much more vocal about ensuring big business pays their fair share of tax. So there's a lot of big companies in Australia that don't pay any company tax. So for example, Qantas, News Corp and Energy Australia haven't paid company tax for the last couple of years. And they're some of Australia's most successful companies turning over millions, if not billions of dollars worth of tax. So uh, the Labor government is just promising they'll be a bit harsher in cracking down on loopholes to make these companies pay their fair share. And that's probably as much as either party has to say on big business so far. 
Probably the last major difference I want to touch on between the two parties is education. I haven't gone into a lot of detail about education in previous episodes, so I wanted to do it now. So in terms of spending, Labor is promising a lot more money for education. They're promising $14 billion over 10 years to public schools specifically. The other really interesting thing that they're advocating for is um, increasing universal preschool access to include three and four-year-olds with 15 hours a week taxpayer-funded early childhood education at a cost of about $1.7 billion. So uh, the coalition is extending their funding for four-year-olds but haven't included anything about three-year-olds. So in terms of... Um, the coalition spending, they're also promising a $4.6 billion package for Catholic and independent schools, uh, but haven't said much about their funding for public schools. So uh, in my analysis of that little breakdown, I feel like Labor is spending a lot more on public schools and is spending a lot more on early childhood education, and they've outlined how they're going to pay for that with their changes to negative gearing, company tax loopholes, franking credits, etc. So uh, if you're looking at education, I feel like of the two parties, Labor is promising more here. The last thing I wanted to touch on in terms of how to vote and how it all works is the common misconception is that my voting for a minor party is throwing your vote away. So in terms of, I'm going to speak specifically about the lower house here. So this is where you're voting for your local member and who's going to be in government. Now, yes, the lower house seats are overwhelmingly held by Labour and Liberal parties, but that doesn't mean that if you vote for a minor party as your one preference that you're throwing your vote away. Because of the preference system in Australia, Eventually, um, in most seats in Australia, your vote will flow to either Labor or Liberal. So it's important that you decide who you want to vote for, whether you think you like Labor or you vote like Liberal better. So the order of where you put those will be very important on your ballot card. However, if you really like a minor party better than either of those two, put them number one. Why? Because if you vote for number one, it actually helps that party get funding for future elections. And also, there's a chance that they might get in. So you, it's not a waste to put a minor party number one and then, say, put the next major party that is your next preferred favourite, number two. So, for example, if you put the evil, evil conglomerate of evil geniuses party number one, and then you put the goody two-shoes party number two, and you put the slightly less evil party number three. Um, if your first preference didn't get in, it'll flow to your second preference, and then flow to your third preference, and so on. So if you want to vote for a minor party number one, that's okay in the House of Reps, and it'll actually help the other parties. I mean, minor parties in future elections. So... Um, whatever you decide to vote in your House of Reps card, make sure you decide whether you prefer Labour or Liberal, and make sure that they're in order accordingly, and then whatever you do with your other votes is up to you, and if you want to put a minor party first, go for it. But at the very least, decide who you want to vote for between Labour and Liberal, because that'll help decide who the government is this election. Now, the last thing I want to uh, suggest is if you really have no idea who to vote for, please go to our Facebook page. So I put up something this morning that was a collection of all the resources and all the how to vote websites I found over the last couple of weeks of the campaign. And if you really have no idea who you want to vote for, jump on those websites. There's a couple of really good quizzes you can do that helps you figure out what policies you care about, what issues you care about. Uh, the Smart Vote one in particular, I really, really like. I think it's really helpful. And I think if you're not sure 
sure who to vote for, it's a really, really good one to do. So uh, if you're still not sure who to vote for, jump on the uh, Facebook page. So just type into the Facebook search bar, a podcast you shouldn't ignore, Aussie Politics Explained, and it'll be one of the top posts I've got on our page. And there's lots and lots of really helpful links to help well, you that's about it from me. to vote so for So happy voting, election. guys. Enjoy the democracy that you have. Enjoy the democracy sausage if you're inclined to get one. If you're vegan or vegetarian, well, maybe enjoy another tasty snack instead. So thank you very much for listening, guys. I'm just so grateful for all the support. Uh, that people have been giving me while I've been recording this. I've gotten a lot of amazing feedback. People are really interested in learning more about the system. I've had lots of really great messages. And I'm honestly just blown away by the support. It's been really, really amazing. I can't believe how many people have listened to this podcast. I'm looking at the play count and it's just staggering. I don't have that many friends that <laughs> to account for all the number of plays that this show has had. I've even had people message me that I've never met before, which is amazing. Like, I'm so happy that people are taking an interest in pod- politics and are trying to make their vote count and are trying to make an informed decision this election. So thank you so much for listening. I'm planning on doing a post-election episode to break down who got in, how it all works, how this impacts you, so stay tuned for that. Uh, I may continue this podcast beyond the election. I actually haven't decided yet. I think my wife would probably prefer it if I spent a bit less time on it. I've been a bit intense over the last couple of weeks on this, but we'll just see how we go. So, again, thank you so much for listening. Happy voting, and until next time, see ya! (laughs) 